Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today's August 4th, 2022, and I'm joined today as usual by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, and by our longtime friend, John Fund, to talk about his new book, Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote. Uh, in addition to being a longtime friend of IPI, John is a columnist for National Review and for foxnews.com. So, John, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to address the IPI supporters and audience. You've been on the forefront of economic freedom in America for a long time. I just had uh, dinner recently with Dick Army, and uh, you continue his legacy proudly. Thank you, John. Uh, Dr. Matthews? Yes, John. Uh, you are one of the country's top election experts. You've written on elections and fraud and so forth for some time. And, of course, we're just two days now past the primaries where we found out some in- interesting information. Give us your take on the primaries that we had on Tuesday. Well, most of the national coverage focused on Kansas, which had a referendum on the ballot that was put there by the Republican legislature to remove uh, reproductive rights from the state constitution. Uh, That was viewed as an extreme measure, especially in wake of the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade. And I believe that uh, the politics of abortion going forward uh, are twofold. One is that it really is in the hands of the states now. Federalism is alive and well. And uh, I think the constitution intended for that to be the case. And we're going to fight it out. Um, I do believe that Kansas shows that just as uh, extreme pro-abortion laws, which are take place in Colorado and in New York and California, are unpopular because they give way too much um, uh, ability to snuff out life in the latter stages of pregnancy, so too uh, measures that are viewed as dramatically curtailing Uh, the availability of abortion in the early months of a pregnancy are considered too extreme. Uh, I think we're probably heading in most states, most of the time, to a situation where it'll be every about the 15-week mark. And But every state will work it out for themselves, and that's what the founders intended. Moving beyond that, I think there were some very interesting uh, results in the other states, and we can discuss them in turn. But I think that in general, uh, the real the real issue was, is Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party as uh, strong as it was before? And there's mixed results on that, depending on the state. But that's a good point, because let's go to Arizona, because they had uh, results there. And the media keep focusing on the issue of uh, the, the Trump back candidates versus the non-Trump back candidates. And I think it's something of a mixed bag as to how that's played out over the uh, over the various primary states. But Arizona, we found out that Trump did OK with that, I think, didn't we? Well, the Gary's for governor in the Republican primary is still to be called. It's still too close. And part of the changes that I discuss in my book are that we never learn who wins the election uh, right away. We have to wait until all the ballots are counted. We've turned Election Day into Election Month. But uh, Trump-backed candidates did win in the U.S. Senate primary and in the Secretary of State's race in Arizona. Uh, Trump also scored a victory when one of his endorsed candidates one in Michigan, ousted a Republican congressman who had voted for his impeachment, Peter Meyer. Uh, he was ousted by a black 
a black Trump supporter named John Gibbs, who served in Trump's administration. Washington State was a different matter. Two Republican members who voted for Trump's impeachment, Jaime Herrera Butler and um, Dan Duckworth, did win. uh, And that forestalled uh, an attempt by Trump to punish them for their vote. And around the rest of the country, it was a completely mixed bag. What we do show, though, is that um, the Democratic squad is still very powerful in its uh, urban uh, redoubts. Uh, There were two attempts to try to defeat members of the squad by moderate black Democrats uh, in urban areas in St. Louis and Detroit. Those failed. Um, There's another one coming up in Minnesota later this month uh, where uh, Elon Omar, uh, the Somali-American congresswoman, Mm -hmm. is going to be challenged by a Jamaican-American immigrant who uh, attacks her over the defund the police support that she gave. Uh, And the last race I would simply point out to people is in Michigan, a very exciting conservative candidate who is here at CPAC in Dallas, as I speak, Tudor Dixon. She's a television commentator and conservative analyst. She won an overwhelming victory for governor of Michigan. So she's the Republican candidate against Gretchen Whitmer, the current incumbent governor. Um, So that's a good summary of where we are across the country. Um, I think that the bottom line is uh, Republicans are under some pressure uh, from the Roe v. Wade decision. There was some evidence that there was increased voter turnout in Kansas on the pro-choice side. On the other hand, President Biden's ratings continue to sink. He's down at 37 or 38 percent. That's not a good place to go for. And in fact, in my home district in Manhattan, New York, where I live, we have a congressional primary between two congressional Democrats, uh, Jerry Nadler and Carolyn Maloney, both of them con- committee chairman people. And you know what? They had a debate the other night, and both of them didn't say they wanted Joe Biden to run for re-election. So, um, I mean, when when you have two Democrats in Manhattan, which is probably the center center of liberal thinking in America, basically, you know, toss Joe Biden under the bus, um, Biden will have some problems running in 2024. John, let's go back and uh, talk about Michigan for a second. Um, I I was lucky enough to meet Tudor Dixon early in the uh, early in the uh, race. She came down to Dallas for a fundraiser, and I was extremely impressed. But I really didn't think she had a great chance because there were so many candidates in that very early on. But it was a series of really uh, amusing and strange developments that sort of leave her on top of the heat. There were several of the uh, several of the candidates there that were disqualified for the ballot for various reasons. So it was it was a bit of a comedy of errors, wasn't it? Well, the front runner in the Republican nomination was going to be James Craig, who was the former police chief of Detroit, an African-American. Uh, but uh, he hired some ballot petition signature gatherers who collected illegal signatures. And so he didn't have the proper amount to qualify for the ballot. He was thrown off. He mounted a half-hearted write-in attempt, but that really didn't go anywhere. So Tudor Dixon has risen from complete obscurity to most Michiganders. And uh, she now stands one step away from being elected governor. It's going to be a very competitive race. Yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be a very interesting race because I think she's she's going to run on uh, you know Gretchen Whitmer's COVID policies, and I think they were <laughs> they were extremely unpopular. I think I, that's how I would run that race too. I have family in Michigan. My father's family's from there, and uh, I had to listen to a lot of complaints about Gretchen Whitmer. They called her the Queen of Mean. Uh, someone even further and called her Gretchen Witchmer. <laughs> she was guilty of a lot of hypocrisy. You know, she uh, 
her husband uh, wanted to take out the family boat. Yes, I remember that. Forth, and uh, it wasn't uh, allowed under the COVID laws. So he went down to the local marina and said, uh, you know, you can make an exception for me. I'm married to the governor. And there were other examples where she took off and went to visit her elderly father in Florida in a private jet, wouldn't release the records. Now, look, I certainly understand um, when you have elderly parents, you want to see them. But when you prevent other people from going to see their elderly parents or going to visit them in nursing homes or other situations, that's called hypocrisy. Also, of course, her, her rules were completely stupid. Uh, you could go and buy pot at a Michigan cannabis store. You could go and buy liquor. You could go and buy a lottery ticket, but you couldn't go to church and you couldn't buy garden seeds to plant in your garden. It was bizarre. Well, John, we can't get off the states without touching on Missouri and the two Eric's because that's one of the places that Trump's uh, candidate actually lost. <laughs> well, remember, when you endorse two candidates with the same first name and you don't mention their last name, you're basically doubling your chances of being right. <laughs> I, I have I have to admit that that Trump amused me in that regard. That would that was a that was a clever, well, clever move, amused. I think. Amused some, exasperated others. <laughs> is this is this a game show or is this right. American democracy? <laughs> so, uh, Eric Schmidt is the attorney general of Missouri. Uh, Eric Greitens was the former governor who left office in disgrace. Um, he was just a few weeks before the primary. He was accused by his former wife of having abused her. Uh, it was generally thought that Eric Greitens had more baggage with him than probably a you know a Cunard steamship liner crossing the Atlantic. Um, and therefore, he would have been too much of a risk um, to run him as the candidate against uh, a very wealthy heiress to the Bush beer fortune, Anheuser-Busch Company. And so Eric Schmidt's argument to Trump and to the voters in Missouri was, I'm a safe pair of hands. I've been the attorney general. I have a record. And he ended up winning fairly easily. Yeah, that's the race I was watching, and I was very, very pleased to see Greitens go down, and I just hope we don't ever have to see him run for another office again. You know, Eric Greitens had a sterling career. He was a Navy SEAL. He was um, a military hero. But, you know, you know what Lord Acton once said? He said, power corrupts, and then he said, power corrupts absolutely. That's Eric Greitens. Well, speaking about people that um... – we don't know if we'll ever see them run again for another office. Um, there's lots of speculation about whether or not Donald Trump is going to run in 2024, whether he's going to announce sooner rather than later. Um, yeah, at this point, this is all still mostly pure speculation, I suppose, unless somehow someone is is close to his thinking. But do you have any thoughts on that? I've known Donald Trump for 35 years. When you're a journalist in New York, all he would try to do was bother you for coverage in the 80s, 90s, and aughts. So I, I don't know him well, but I've known him a long time. And I can tell you with absolute assurance that if you like what Donald Trump says he's going to do, wait five minutes, he might do something else. And if you don't like what he says he's going to do, wait five minutes, he might do something else. Uh, I think it's safe to say he's unlikely to announce for president before the midterm election for no other reason that, that one of the political action committees that he controls is $105 million in it. And should he announce for president, all kinds of federal campaign finance restrictions kick in and he loses complete control over that money. So I suspect he'll wait to, a lot longer to announce, uh, even though he's itching to do so. 
Uh, right now, I think he's leaning towards running. Um, but uh, remember, the longer the people speculate about him, the more they're talking about him. We're talking about him right now. And he likes that. He likes the attention focused on him. Having said that, I do detect that over the course of the last year or so, um, Trump is losing some altitude among Republican voters. I basically call it a slowly leaking balloon. Uh, and a lot of it, and this comes from when I give speeches and people come up to me afterwards, they say, look, I liked what Donald Trump did for the country. I voted for him twice, but he uh, he hasn't changed his style. Uh, he lives in the past. He's constantly relitigating the 2020 election. Uh, he's not talking about the future, what he would do in the future. And I uh, think he has too much baggage. We can't afford to lose the 2024 presidential election. Joe Biden is probably not going to be the Democratic nominee, so we won't be that lucky. Uh, we may have a strong Democrat running. We can't afford to nominate a candidate who is alienated enough of the electorate that will vote for him just because they don't like his tweets or they don't like his character. We're talking about the 2024 election now, and you mentioned that uh, there might be some strong Democrats. I've been looking at the bench of the Democrats and have not seen much in the way of a strong candidate. As as poor as Biden is, I would think Kamala Harris would be even poorer. And as you're looking at some of the others, I think, well, you know, is is Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, uh, Governor Pritzker of uh uh, Illinois is thinking of uh, apparently sort of testing the waters, and neither one of them seem to be viable options. Are there some good options for Democrats? Yes. I think often what happens is candidates who are not well-known nationally are often dismissed because they're not well-known nationally. But they can quickly capture media attention and media support and financing. I'll give you a couple of examples. Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, ran a very credible race for president in 2020. I think she could run again. She has a reputation as a moderate, a serious person. Uh, so too Pete Buttigieg, who's currently the secretary of transportation. There are other Democrats who might look at what uh, Donald Trump pulled off in 2016 and say it's time for an outsider. Uh, a moderate Southern Democrat like Roy Cooper uh, of North Carolina, uh, he could run. And you say, well, he would never have a chance. Well, Jimmy Carter decided that he could run as an ex-moderate governor of Georgia in 1976, and he became president. Similarly, Sheryl Sandberg, who just stepped down last week from being CEO of Facebook, um, she could be a surprise Democratic candidate. The Democrats might say Republicans ran an outsider business person in 2016, let us run our own. You know, John, you make a great point about it being too soon to say that the Democrats don't have a strong bench, because you're right. I mean, Bill Clinton kind of came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody thought the country was going to nominate, much less elect someone with the middle name of Hussein. Uh, <laughs> so these things, I mean, these things can be very, very surprising. Uh, but by contrast, it seems like the Republicans have just an, an enormous uh, abundance of obviously strong candidates. I was just, for the first time, really, I was looking at Ron DeSantis's resume the other day. And, uh, you know, this this is not just a successful Florida politician. This is a man who has a string of professional accomplishments that would make his, his mother and grandmother proud. Uh, we really do have some really excellent uh, options on the right. Yes, but the candidates are going to be into two categories. Remember, one of the reasons Donald Trump won the nomination in 2016 is he had 17 opponents. 
and they never coalesced to try to oppose him. They all ran their own campaigns. So Trump ended up winning the Republican nomination with 39% of the vote in the primaries. Uh, Should Trump run again, I suspect he won't have 17 opponents. He's considered the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Maybe he's only 600 pounds now, but that's still a lot. And I suspect there'll only be two or three or four serious candidates against him. Uh, Ron DeSantis has certainly been talked about. Senator Cotton from Arkansas, uh, all kinds of others are are mentioned. But, you know, Trump right now in a one-on-one against DeSantis isn't as strong as he might once have been. Uh, He has a nine-point lead over DeSantis among Republican primary voters in the latest USA Today poll. Uh, And he actually trails DeSantis in the New Hampshire primary poll. That's the first in the nation primary. So I think Trump would have a fight on his hands, and it would be more of a one-on-one than it was in 2016. John, we got a little ahead of ourselves um, talking about 2024, but there's still uh, a rich mine of 2022 for us to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, people are just sort of taking for granted that the Republicans are going to take control of the House. Uh, and so, in a sense, that's almost not that interesting. Although, I mean, you know, the, well, margin, the margin will be. Yeah. The margin of how many seats they win is important because, A, that will depend uh, a lot on, you know, whether a future speaker, Kevin McCarthy, can exercise real control over his caucus or whether there'll be enough rebels and dissidents that he has to constantly negotiate with them, like Speaker Ryan and Speaker Boehner did with the Freedom Caucus. So that's important. But the Senate is the rig prize. And right now, I would say the Senate is up for grabs. Uh, I think the Republicans have a slight edge, but uh, they've nominated some controversial candidates in a couple of races. Uh, Democrats are pounding on their weaknesses. And um, a lot of it will be the the fact that some some voters still vote locally. Some voters aren't just, you know, tribal voters or my guy who has an R or D after his name is the person I'm going to vote for. So I think a lot a lot of whether or not the Senate will tilt Republican will be how many voters vote on local issues and how many vote on the national issues and the fact that President Biden has been so unpopular. So, John, the um, the Democrats feel like their chances could improve if they get this uh, new version of the Build Back Better, the Schumer Mansion legislation. If uh, Bill, Build if they Back can get Broker, that I call it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if they can get that through. Um, do you think I mean, they feel like they've got to be able to provide something to uh, sort of energize their people? What do you think th- if, if they are able to get this legislation through? And that's still an, a, probably a big if, though it's it it can be done. The uh, what do you think that does for their chances? Does it actually help them that much? Well, one of the things that President Biden is experiencing is real dejection on the part of his Democratic base. Only about 75 percent of Democrats actually approve of Biden's uh, record as president. That's historically low for an incumbent president in his own party. So I think that it would energize Democrats to come out and vote more because they will have have more accomplishments to tout. Uh, I don't think the bill itself is one that uh, is particularly helpful to the country. Uh, It's basically in three parts. Part one is uh, minimum tax on corporations, especially manufacturers. I thought we were supposed to try to bring manufacturing back to America and, you know, save our hollowed out industries. Uh, It also, of course, would fall a lot on small business. And I don't see that as improving either inflation or 
the economic recovery. The second part is a massive giveaway to the energy, alternative energy industry, $7,500 a year if you buy an electric car um, that still will make electric cars more expensive than gas cars. So I don't know how much impact that will have, but it's a truly massive subsidy for electric vehicles, for solar and for um, wind power. And the last part is uh, a, con a, a collection of uh, things that are basically payoffs to the environmental lobby. For example, that West Virginia uh, decision where the Supreme Court said, you know, Congress has to specifically direct um, regulatory agencies to do something for them to issue regulations. They can't just make it up out of thin air. Well, it slipped in this bill, according to Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, is a provision that would basically rewrite the law and say Congress is directing uh, the regulatory agencies to control uh, carbon emissions directly and therefore basically mm -hmm. vitiating and hollowing out the Supreme Court decision. That's very serious. It's buried in the bill. And the fact that we're not even debating it shows how desperate the Democrats are, A, to get it, and B, make sure that nobody finds out about it until it's passed. John, one last question, and then we'll wrap things up. And I want to riff off of your observation that that Republicans have nominated some controversial candidates for Senate. And, you know, what, what looks like should have been a layup for Republicans at the midterms in the Senate is now up for grabs, as you as you put it. And I want to sort of focus on Arizona. This may be provocative, but in some states, it seems like Republican primary voters are trying to lose rather than trying to win. Uh, you know, Arizona, you know, has gone from having two Republican senators to two Democrat senators in a shockingly quick span of time. And, you know, as an outside observer looking in, I, I see that as the fault of Republican primary voters in Arizona for the kind of candidates they're nominating. So in some of these red states, do we see Republican parties that are really serious about trying to win the general, or do they seem almost in an ironic sense that they, they care more about purity than they do about actually winning elections? Well, actually, in Arizona, I don't think Blake Masters was the weakest candidate in that field. I think that he will have a lot of money. He's very smart. Uh, he said some unfortunate things when he was a college undergraduate 25 years ago. But I think he'll be a strong candidate. Georgia is where I'm actually worried. Herschel mm -hmm. Walker is a football legend, um, Heisman Trophy, all of that. Uh, but Herschel Walker is not a skilled candidate. Uh, I've seen him in person a couple of times. And he has this charm and he has this aw shucks attitude. But for people to take him seriously as a United States senator will require more. He's dodged debates. He's finally agreed to one. But here's a case where the incumbent Democratic senator is challenging Herschel Walker to dozens of debates. And Herschel Walker so far has agreed to only one. That shows that I think Walker's Republican handlers are worried about his ability to duke it out with Mr. Warnock, the incumbent Democratic senator. So and, and in Pennsylvania, I think Dr. Oz has a, a lot of points that he can score against John Fetterman, the very, very liberal lieutenant governor who's his Democratic opponent for Senate. But it doesn't help that Dr. Oz moved to New Jersey 35 years ago, hasn't been back to Pennsylvania and only moved back a few months ago. Pennsylvania is not exactly thrilled with carpetbaggers, and that is a weakness. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It's always good to hear from you and talk to you. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Tom and Merrill. And we appreciate those of you who are listening for joining us today. 
We would invite you to check out our website at ipi.org. You can sign up if you'd like to receive notices of all of our new podcasts, our new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.